From New Orleans, this is Mindset. Psychiatrist Dr. Nick Pajic interviews the leading lights of America's most fascinating city. If you walk out of Tipitina's onto Napoleon Avenue and head away from the river, you go by Miss May's Bar, which never closes, past the basketball courts next to the Second District Police Station. You might not know it unless you're a serious Catholic, but you're in Good Shepherd Parish. Even if you don't know that, you can't miss, a couple blocks up, the cathedral-sized church with the bell tower and spire that thrust across up into the sky, way above the skyline of old wooden houses that line the uptown streets around it. This is St. Stephen's Church. It's imposing. This is a big church, very high vaulted ceilings, beautiful stained glass windows, and in the pulpit, a cherubic-looking priest with a shiny balding head and an even shinier smile, sparkling friendly wise eyes, and welcoming worldly sunny disposition. This is not your father's hellfire and brimstone priest. This is Monsignor Christopher Nolte. There, there basically are two ways to be made a Monsignor. One is that you hold an office in the church, a particular office, like usually in diocese, the chancellor or the, the, the judicial vicar or the vicar general or the rector of the seminary, they're usually the Monsignors. Yeah. Or you're a priest for an extended period of time, you're old retired priest and it's given, it's because it, all it is is an honorary title. Um, but an office that gets made a Monsignor is Vatican official. And since I was a Vatican official, after five years of service there, they named me a Monsignor. Monsignor Nolte spent five years in Rome as a priest working inside the Vatican and that's only one part of the fascinating story of Norlinian Christopher Nolte. My family is from uptown, uh, from right around here where we, where we are. My, uh, my grandparents on my mother's side of the family were baptized in the church where I am at St. Stephen's. Yeah. And my grandparents on my dad's side of the family were baptized in the next parish over Our Lady of Good Counsel. And when my parents got married, there was beginning of maybe some more crime uptown in the yeah. early, early 60s. And so they were some of the first people to sort of blaze the trail and to move out into what, what's now called Old Metairie. And so I, I was born there, uh, and I, I, I grew up in Old Metairie. I, I, um, I, I lived, we lived in St. Francis Xavier Parish. Um, I went to Jesuit High School. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I started to be away from New Orleans for a while. I went away to college, to Notre Dame. For four years, I went after that and did a JD MBA at Georgetown. Georgetown. And then finally, I got to move home. <laughs> and uh, so I moved home back in 1988, and I was practicing law for a big law firm downtown and um, doing what I thought I was going to do the rest of my life. My mm -hmm. dad was a lawyer. Uh, I'd been around the practice of law a lot. I worked with a great group of attorneys. and uh, and was But there was always something kind of digging in my mind. I always kind of knew that God had some sort of a plan for me, and I just wondered how I was going to figure out what it was. When I was in law school, um, I dated a girl who uh, we dated kind of off and on all the way. From, I met her the first day of college, and she went to med school at Georgetown. And we split up my, uh, my second year of JD MBA program. And it was at that time I came home and I was talking to a friend of my dad's who was a priest. I didn't go to talk to him because he was a priest. I just needed to talk to somebody about it because I'd been dating this girl for so long and we mm -hmm. broke up. And he said to something to me that I never, nobody had ever said to me before. He asked me if I ever thought about being a priest. And um, we, he said it as we were walking out of his office. He was walking me to my car. And right as he said it, we walked into the sun. And the sun hit me in the face. Wow. And my first thought was, oh, no, not this, you know. <laughs> 
But he planted a seed, and um, and I, after that, I started making yearly retreats with a lot of secular men, lawyers and doctors and stuff, at Manresa. It's a big men's re retreat place down in Convent, Louisiana, up in Convent, Louisiana. And, uh, and I just kept thinking about it. This idea of being a priest kept coming back. What was that and, like? Uh, How did it present itself to you? Just the thought of what I would, I would be at Mass and look up at the priest uh, behind the altar and think what it would be like to do that. Mm -hmm. I really didn't know what priests did outside of, um, you know, obviously weddings and funerals and, and saying Mass on Sundays yeah. and, and, and being with people. But um, it, I just kind of saw myself up there in a sense. Like, I wonder how it would be if I was up there. And then, then I had the, the drawbacks to it because, you know, kind of the world's mindset is the things that are most important are uh, money, power, oh, yeah. and sex. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and in counteracting to that, Jesus came poor, obedient to his father, and celibate, okay? Yeah. Exactly against the values of the world. And so... To me, that was a little scary. I think that I always saw myself as a, as a parent, you know, and, and I always saw myself with a woman, and I was yeah. always dating, and we kept getting closer and closer to that. And then I didn't really understand what obedience meant. I mean, I didn't, the bishop could, you know, send me to Zimbabwe or something like that. I, mean, yeah. I really didn't know. Um, and, uh, and, and, I, and, I, and I guess I struggled a little bit with the, with the poverty aspect of it, too, because I... You know, I didn't really know what do, you, what do you have to give up? How does it really work? And coming from a middle class, upper middle class background, I would mm -hmm. assume, is that okay to assume that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That for you to take a vow of poverty, such as Jesus, or as Jesus would, or yeah. did, I mean, that's a big, drastic change. So that was kind of yeah. on your mind, too. Is like I probably worried more about the celibacy. Right. <laughs> you know? So what's that like? What's that like for you to... Well, it, you it's, it's interesting, because I think that for someone on the outside looking in at a priest, um, at the priesthood, uh, it, it seems like the biggest critics of celibacy are the people who aren't celibates, you know? <laughs> um, and, and so for me, it was, a, um, it was a fear. It was, could I live like that? Could, you know, would I be lonely? Would I be fulfilled? Would I, you know, it's, like I said, the world makes such a big deal about, about right. sexuality that yeah. the idea of not having, you know, intimacy, that type of intimacy, um, and then they talk about celibacy. The church speaks about celibacy as a charism, not as something that's really a discipline, but something that you're given. And the whole point is, really, it's imitation of Christ. Um, but it is also is a sign to the world that people can be happy and fulfilled without, without that. that. And it points to heaven because in heaven we're not married. Mm -hmm. And so, so in, in a sense, priests and consecrated religious are calls to be signed that you can be absolutely fulfilled doing what we're doing now, which will point to heaven, signs of heaven in a sense. I knew at one point, and I still do, that this is what God wants me, just as much as, as if I sat behind your desk and, and God walked in the room and said, I want you to leave here and go become a priest. That's how firmly it, I, it came, but it didn't come in one moment. I mean, it was a course of eight years of thinking about it and thinking about well, it. I think a, a lot of people, I mean, listeners to this show might need to know that where yeah. your calling was a slow, mm -hmm. uh, kind of methodical Tug. And it doesn't happen that way with everybody. Some people can like point to the moment when it happened. And I did have particular moments. There were some moments, yeah. but, but God worked through my free will and, and I just kept thinking about it and thinking about it. And I think my final decision was almost like, you've been thinking about this for eight years. Either you ought to be prepared to think about this for the rest of your life 
or you can go give it a shot. And if it doesn't work out, with it. you can talk, turn away and walk back. So I had a house, I and mean, so I, I rented my house, I put my law practice on hold, and I said, I'm just going to give it a shot, you know? And Were you dating work anybody out. at the time? Was that what? I'm dating sorry. anybody at the time? Uh, you know, kind of. I had broken up with a girl I'd been dating for about three years right before I made the decision this is what I had to do. Yeah. And it was probably about eight months, six to eight months before I went into the seminary. And, and during that time, I, you know, I've, women have always, I've always had great, great friendships with women, and I still do. With many of the girls who I dated, we're very, very close friends. Sure. And I was seeing someone at the time, but it was in a real friend sort of way. And I thought, I think she thought I was not going to last in seminary. And <laughs> I kind of thought, well, it'd be nice if somebody was waiting for me, which was really unfair for me, you know, to, to, because she did yeah. kind of wait for me during that time yeah. uh, for about a year and a half until my second year of seminary where, you know, she said, you're not coming back, are you? And I had to be honest. And I said, no, I don't think I am. When you were ordained a priest or when you became Monsignor, mm -hmm. um, and, and tell me about how to well, the word was a, Monsignor and how do yeah, you I was ordained that? a priest in 99 mm -hmm. and then and that was after five years in Rome four years in Rome I went back and finished a degree in canon law and then I came back and worked in a parish out in Kenner um, mm -hmm. for three years and I also helped out in, with the Archdiocesan Tribunal handling marriage annulment cases and then um, and then for whatever reason, and I, I never find out, you're, you're really not supposed to find out how I got to Rome, but the bishop one day said to me, I've got a call from this Cardinal Castrion, works for the Congregation for Clergy, and they want you to come work over there. Well, I didn't never met Cardinal Castrion before. Mm -hmm. um, I have no idea how they chose me, but, but that's, I went over there and did that. And if you, to be a Monsignor, so I was just Father Christopher, you know, out in the yeah. parish. I think I may be the only person in the history of the Archdiocese who had a party after their ordination at the FNM patio bar, <laughs> because it's just, owned by a friend of mine. Right, and so for people that don't know, FNMs is a yeah. kind of a dive bar on it's Chapatulos. A, it's a very much of a dive bar on Chapatulos, yeah. and usually doesn't start going until about two in the morning. Absolutely. Now, my party did not start at two. <laughs> my party was in the afternoon. It was a crawfish boil, but a good, good friend of mine uh, owns a bar, uh, and I haven't. I really don't go to bars anymore. But uh, we tend to, in the United States, I think, separate. Uh, unfortunately, kind of civic, secular life and religious life. Um, and, they, and they don't really meet in the public square too much. They're perceived yeah. as enemies, almost like faith and reason are enemies of each other. Whereas in, in most cultures in the world, they're part of people's lives. They're integrated into their lives. The Catholic, and this city is unique in that. It is a very strong Catholic culture. Um, the, the priests are well known. They're out on the streets. They're not out in their, you know, in an ivory tower or anything like that. Yeah. Um, but but people's faith needs to be that. It's a, it's faith is a lived experience. It's not something that you compartmentalize and you put it on Sunday and the rest of the week is for is for the world. You know. Let's get back for just a moment to how you got promoted from priest to Monsignor. Tell me a little bit about how that worked. It's a little bit embarrassing because, you know, frankly, there aren't any, the diocese hasn't made any Monsignors in a number of years, and so I'm kind of the youngest guy as a Monsignor, and it, it, it's really not a title as much for you as it's really for your family and for your, for your parishioners, your people that you work yeah. for, you know? And so, um, you know, to me, I, you know, I, I, it's a little bit, like I said, embarrassing uh, to be the young Monsignor. Well, it's, a Monsignor. Well, it's a, you know? quite an um, honor and, 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 and I'm and, happy to and and responsibility I'm happy to, on top oh, of yeah. that, you know. Oh, and I was honored, but to receive it, I mean, there's no doubt about that. In fact, I asked, I asked my boss, who's now a cardinal, uh, at the time, uh, I said, "Well, you know, do I have to go by Monsignor? Because everybody at home knows right. me by Father Christopher." And and he said to me, 
well, you know, he said, it's, he said in Italian, he said, but it's an office, it's, it's a title given directly by the Holy Father, and maybe if you don't go by it, you're not being grateful for the honor. Holy Father being God the, or the, the, no, the, the Pope? No, the Pope, the Pope, yeah. the Pope. So, uh, so, so uh, you know, that's... Says, well, I'm gonna, yeah, well, I guess, yeah, I guess I'm Monsignor now. <laughs> Monsignor, as a psychiatrist, I'm interested to know what it's like for you hearing confessions. Let's take a quick break and come back and talk about that. My guest today is Monsignor Christopher Nolte. I'm Dr. Nick Pajic. We'll be right back hearing confessions on Mindset. Welcome back to Mindset. I'm Dr. Nick Pajic. I'm sitting with Monsignor Christopher Nolte. Monsignor, we've talked about you starting out as a successful New Orleans attorney and how you gave it all up to humble yourself in the service of the church, only to find yourself plucked out of servitude to go work at the highest levels of the church in the Vatican in Rome. Five years later, you were sent back to New Orleans to St. Stephen's on Napoleon Avenue. I'm interested to know as a person who's had a successful secular career, then a successful ecclesiastical career. You've dated women and you've partied. What's it like for you now to hear confessions? My friends, when I started to hear confessions, like, what do you hear? What do you hear? You know, right. and they think like Jeffrey Dahmer's coming into my <laughs> confessional. And I said, and I said to him, what I've come to understand is it would be like if you went to that safari car wash on veterans. And, and, and you drove in there in your car, and you let it go through the car wash, and then you start talking to the car wash owner, and you say, you know, you must uh, see a lot of dirt here. Huh? Mm -hmm. What kind of, I mean, you must see like mud, mud. and <laughs> like, you know, car poop on cars. <laughs> right. I mean, you, what's the worst thing you've seen in terms of, and they, the guy would look at you and go, well, this place isn't about dirt. It's about, it's about clean cars. Uh, yeah. And so, so confessional is about clean souls. And, right. uh, and, and being able to see it happen, literally have someone walk in, who you can see the weight of their sins holding them down, particularly someone who hasn't been to confession in a long time. And then hearing them say their sins, expressing their sorrow, deep sorrow usually, especially after a long time of holding on to sins, they're just inside of them. They're like in their attic and they're tearing up their lives. Yeah. And then for them to hear those words of consecration, those words of absolution, um, where I absolve you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, your sins are forgiven, go in peace. And to see that that weight lifted off of them is helps you if you have any doubts. You know, it, those are one of those moments where you just you know that something happened. That something you happened. see people walk out, and so um, when I say doubts about doubts about my own ability to do things, to get things done, to to to, to and and if I give someone bad advice or if I if I if I say something uncharitable, someone doubts about yeah. and and my own sins. I mean, I'm, you don't become a priest and all of a sudden you don't have any temptations. In fact, sure. I think you probably get tempted more. I think the devil doesn't really like what we do, and uh, because we forgive sins and we bring Christ to people, so uh, you tend to get. How does, in what form does that come? The devil kind of works in three different ways. We always dramatize like the possession aspect of it, okay, which occasionally happens. Um, and then there's the way he, he, can, he can attack people, oppress people. But mm -hmm. the most typical way the devil works is how he works in all of our lives is by tempting us, okay, yeah. to tempting us to do something 
and, and we're not tempted by something ugly. I mean, the devil's not going to show up, you know, to me with a with a pitchfork right, and, and, well, and a tail. You <laughs> you know, he's going to show up into something that's attractive to me, that yeah. that is a good, because the devil wants to pervert good. I think the easiest way is is, is sexuality. Sexual human sexuality is the greatest good. How oh, do yeah. we how do we have more creatures? How do we have more human beings right, if we don't have that? Yeah. But 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 you can have you can make the sexuality look good, but have it be disordered. It's not ordered to what God intended. It's it can be that way with food too. You know you know we have no problem you know you can go on Oprah and talk about eating disorders, yeah. and nobody's got a problem. Of course, there's eating disorders, but no one says that there's sexual disorders. There's there's things that are not ordered correctly, and and and, and it causes harm. Just like an eating disorder causes Absolutely. people's health harm, a sexual disorder causes them other harm. One of the interesting things about dealing with these issues as a priest is that you are, as you said, living in a vertical world, meaning your perspective of human foibles is based on your belief in a higher order and God. But in Christianity, God is also man. God becoming a man is the most mind-blowing thing you could ever imagine. The infinite God subjecting himself to his creation. But if it's true, wow. You know, his incarnation becoming man was more about showing us, I think if, if, if we were to say one thing, if we said, Jesus, why did you come? What was it come? He would, he would say, I came to show you how much my father loves you. That he, I subject myself to you. I will, I'm willing to die for you. What more can you do for someone than to die for someone? I mean, to show us not only how much God loves us, but how great our dignity is. Because he didn't come as a zebra right. or as a spirit. Suffering was how the world was redeemed. All right? Jesus has suffered, and that's how the world was redeemed. And if you talk to people, most people would agree that they learned more in their lives in suffering than they did in joy. Yeah. Um, yeah. You can remember great parties you went to and great food you had. Did you really learn anything? But really in suffering, people really learn about their reality. You know? What about for you then, bring it back to you, mm -hmm. um, where, what times in your life have you suffered the most, do you think? It's kind of been ongoing. Uh, mm. I have moments. Um, I, I haven't, you know, when I was younger, I think I, I went through, you know, injuries and physical suffering. And, and, mm. and even when I had some pretty hard physical suffering, um, it was always temporary. Now, I've never had bone cancer or something like that that, that yeah. was that excruciating, but broken limbs, platens, pins, you know, pin in my shoulder, you know, all these kind of things, surgeries. Um, they always got better, and I found that the suffering that was emotional, mm -hmm. um, like you know, dating a girl for six years off and on, and then yeah. breaking up, yeah. that's something that I that I can still get in touch with. The, my dad passed away two years ago. That's a suffering I can still. I can't feel where they put the plate and the pin in my arm anymore. It's healed. Yeah. But those those emotional sufferings tend to be more, and so so those are the ones that I kind of go through more often, and it's you know. It can be uh, internal, you know, doubting that you're doing a good job, anxiety about the future, or it could be feeling that you hurt someone or having someone direct their anger at you. So uh, the breakup of uh, the six-year relationship, on again, off again, this is before you went into the priesthood. Yeah, yeah, yeah obviously. I mean, right. <laughs> <laughs> we would hope. Yeah, yeah, it was, that was, yeah, that was uh, between 1980 and 86, so that was... Uh, that so that, that stuck with you is something, but in, even to this day, do you think you suffer through that where you have thoughts well, I, but about But you it? can still remember it. It's easy yeah. to remember heartaches, you know? Oh, and yeah. and, and oh, luckily yeah. I've, I was, you know, we, we, we didn't not ever talk anymore, but we had two, 
two occasions, three occasions after that to get together, just the two of us, and talk about it. She's married. She has three kids. She's great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we, my first year of seminary was in Washington. She was still living in Washington. and went out to lunch, talked about it. A few years later, I was a priest. She actually came to Rome to visit me while I was a priest oh, really? with her oh, husband. Wow. Um, a few years later, she, we were in New Orleans. Just the two of us went out to lunch and, 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 and just talked. And we both knew that we had caused each other suffering. I mean, I wasn't, wasn't, we were both to blame. You know, it wasn't a, it wasn't like one of us broke up with the other. It was, it was eight, six years and, you know, we did a lot of things that we shouldn't have to each other. There must have been something going on there. Yeah, and 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 I'm I'm crazy about her. I mean, I think the last time we saw her, I think we hugged and we said we loved each other. Ah, that's very sweet. And and, and somehow God preserved me from that. I didn't have any, like, uh, fatal attraction kind of relationships. I'm still very close to many of the women who I dated, and uh, our relationship now is very, very different, you know, but it's, uh, but but beautiful, you know? And uh, one last thing I'd like to talk to you Mm -hmm. about is when you were growing up, what was your childhood like? Uh, What was it like your home, the climate in your home, and how how was that linked to what you're like now? I think that's that's a good question. Somebody asked me, you know, because my parents were very involved with the church. My dad was a deacon in the church. Um, they they would ask me, you know, how much did your parents play a role in it? And and I, and I, and I would say even to this day, they never pushed me to be a priest. Mm-hmm. But what they did was, I think, they gave me a good example. Um, we we had a faith filled home, and we prayed together. You know, we went to church, mm-hmm. uh, and and faith was was natural for us in our family. Um, that's not to say that, you know, I have three sisters and a brother that they didn't get away like a lot of people do is they go away from home, they go to college, and they kind of stop going okay. to church and that type yeah. of thing. A lot of people go through that. I never did. I, I and Part of it was because I went to Notre Dame, and so my faith was kind of, the faith that I had in, in New Orleans was kind of the same faith they had there. Everybody's Catholic. Everybody yeah. goes to church. You were weird if you didn't go to church. But, but I think that my parents gave me the freedom at all times and, and impressed upon me that my future was up to me. You know, they weren't going to hold my hand. I had to choose. And so, and I got to witness something. Is I witnessed their sacrament. My parents, the sacrament of their marriage, they lived it. Mm-hmm. And, and so I understood what a lived sacrament was. And mm-hmm. so when I receive a sacrament, the sacrament of holy orders is very similar to the sacrament of marriage. It's a lifetime of service. Mm-hmm. Them at service to each other as husband and wife, and me at service to the church. And so I understood what a sacrament meant. I understood that a sacrament was something that was was given by God and had to be lived with God to be successful. Marriages where people just think they can go and sign a contract and have a party and live together yeah. are the ones that fall apart. Yeah. Marriages that keep God in the center, because if you think about it just logically, God is love, right? Mm-hmm. And God says that. Jesus says, you know, God is, St. Paul says, St. John says, God is love. Well, if God is love, then, then God is that which binds us together. Yeah. And a couple who marry and then they don't pay attention to God, well, then they're just horizontal. Then they're in the world, and then and then they're never gonna they're gonna be living in the dirt, in the stuff that's passing away, as as opposed to in the light, you know, where God wants them to live. And so, renewing, I, I impress upon. I do weddings almost every weekend, and I impress mm-hmm. upon the importance of prayer together. There mm-hmm. really, if you do look at national surveys, very few things are as connected to happy marriages as prayer in the home between the husband and the wife. You know, uh, even little things, saying grace together. Saying our yeah. father before you go to bed, going to church on Sundays. You know, people don't have to become hermits to have a close right. relationship with God, but they have to recognize that he's there. My guest today is Monsignor Christopher Nolte. Monsignor Nolte has been an attorney, a Vatican official, and is currently pastor of St. Stephen's Church on Napoleon Avenue in Good Shepherd Parish. I'm Dr. Nick Pajic. 
Thank you for being with me on this edition of Mindset. Mindset is produced by Jennifer Casey. Technical direction by Eric Morrill. Mindset music is composed and performed by Alexis Marceau and Sam Crabb. Mindset is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com. You know Labor Day signals the unofficial end of summer, but not the end of your outdoor projects. Lowe's helps you do it right and helps you save with Labor Day deals throughout the store. Shop now and get two bags of Stay Green Potty Mix for $12. And keep your lawn looking neat and trim with a Craftsman 2-Cycle 17-inch gas string trimmer, now $20 off at just $119. Whatever's still on your to-do list this Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 828. Soil offer excludes Alaska and Hawaii, U.S. only.